Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. In 2019, Fireblocks came out of stealth mode, raising $16 million from investors, including Eight Roads the proprietary investment arm of Fidelity, Swisscom Ventures, and Tanaya Capital. By January of this year, Fireblocks was securing more than $9 billion in assets. That number has now skyrocketed to more than $30 billion as Fireblocks continues to grow its network of over 50 institutional clients, including exchanges, wallets, custodians, brokerages, and OTC desks. As the first adopter of MPC technology in Asia, Amber Group is a proud Fireblocks partner. In this episode, I chat with Amy Zhang, Vice President of Asia Sales, and Stephen Richardson, Head of Product Strategy, about how Fireblocks is changing the narrative around custody and security. Hear how Fireblocks' secure transfer environment is enabling a smoother operational experience between crypto-native market participants and legacy financial institutions entering the digital asset ecosystem. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Amy and Stephen, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you both join me on the pod. Hey, Leslie, we're glad to be here. It's been a while since I've sat down and recorded with someone in the same time zone. So thanks, Amy, for joining me here in Hong Kong and Stephen in Singapore. The topic for today is, of course, to cover all things Fireblocks. But before getting into the weeds, I would love to get up close and personal. Could you both share a bit more about your background, how you ended up in Asia, and what led you to Fireblocks? Perhaps we can start with Amy and then Stephen. Sure. Um, so I joined Fireblocks a few months ago uh, to spearhead our Asia expansion, working with Stephen. Uh, prior to Fireblocks, I was at DigiNex as the head of sales, where I looked after our exchange, custody, trading, and trading technology business for digital assets. So before DigiNex and my foray into digital assets, I was a cross-platform sales trader at Deutsche for both Hong Kong and uh, New York. That's actually how I came out to Asia in the first place working with for Deutsche Bank. Uh, and at Deutsche, I was um, helping clients to trade equities for high-touch and electronic trading. And uh, this is Steven Richardson. I run product strategy globally for Fireblocks. I've been with Fireblocks now for full-time for about a year, but previous to that was a, an advisor for the Fireblocks team uh, going back quite a bit. Previously to Fireblocks, I was at Accenture Strategy as a consultant, um, working with Fortune 500 companies on things like product innovation and launching new product lines and business lines. Prior to that, I was at a company called Noble Markets, where I was the head of product and uh, also ran strategy for uh, Noble Markets, which was a, a digitally focused financial services company. And moving out to Asia generally because we see a lot of growth here in the region and we want to really uh, make sure we're putting resources here that are dedicated to understanding the unique components of you know the capital market space here in, in Asia. Excellent. It seems like you guys have a good mixture from the traditional background, finance and consulting, and both also came from the crypto ecosystem before joining Fireblock. So that must have definitely been an asset when people hear security, they don't necessarily envision innovation. They see security as a tool, as an important layer of the tech stack. So in that sense, 
They might see security more as a means to an end. But I think Fireblocks is proving this notion wrong. And from what I understand, Fireblocks sees the security ecosystem as a spoke and hub model, uh, with security being at the core from which things such as trading, investing, and lending can be optimized. So, Stephen, would you say this is an accurate depiction? Yeah, I mean, on our side, I think it's very accurate, right? I mean, we know that working in the digital asset space, it's quite unforgiving, right? If, if assets are lost or hacked, that bodes pretty negatively for the ability for a company to do its business. Being able to secure those assets in a way that doesn't compromise the security model is important. But when you look at the capital markets use cases like trading and lending and other things, right, they need to be able to operate in a pretty dynamic and highly online way. And so, you know, when you look at a security model from a security perspective, Creating a platform that allows you to secure those assets while they're in motion uh, and while sitting in an active basis becomes imperative for allowing, you know, other capital markets use cases like investing and trading and lending to occur in a way that's pretty seamless and uh, replicates what they're able to do in other traditional markets. Let's rewind back to the summer of 2019 when Fireblocks had just raised $16 million dollars backed by the likes of Fidelity, Swisscom Ventures, and others. Stephen, you joined shortly after. What were your conversations like with clients during the early stages of product development? At that time, the ecosystem wasn't as built out yet. To the extent that we see the trading platforms, the investing platforms, and financing platforms now. So could you give us a taste of what your conversations were like with clients at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, from from the perspective of, of where things were, it wasn't that people were seeing a ton of security gaps, right? There there was more scalability gaps than anything else, right? So, you know, folks were either utilizing cold storage or they were utilizing hardware devices like ledgers and others, or they were actually like, uh, you know, depending on exchange security, right? Utilizing the wallets on their exchanges and leaving, you know, capital on those different exchanges, right? And, and the question was really, you know, as you grow and you scale your business, you know, everyone's goals are to, you know, grow their business, grow their volumes, grow operational personnel, etc. How do you do that in a way where, you know, you're not depending on, you know, a quiet group of folks that are securing ledger devices in, in vaults or putting capital on exchanges with, you know, not an easy way to recall those, those assets back into, you know, a central basis? Or depending on things like cold storage, where the time to uh, asset availability was pretty significant, right? And so that's really where a lot of those conversations centered around how do we help trading firms and OTC firms really build out scalable infrastructure that replicates, you know, what they saw when they were working at banks, right? And the infrastructure and the security models that were there to allow operational personnel to access funds, but to do it in a way that is secure and from a work workflow perspective is quite efficient, right? And so really when we were having those conversations, that's really where they centered on and doing it with, you know, the likes of, you know, our first set of clients, we were able to really optimize those workflows and develop a solution that allowed trading firms to be able to uh, hold assets in a very online manner and deploy those assets securely to the different venues and trading venues that they had. For sure. And actually, this is a nice segue to talk about sort of the sophisticated market that, that we see now, you know, as more of these market participants start to scale up to service their existing client base and cater to new entrants, right? They need to rely on a solid operational backbone, such as what you were just talking about. So Amy, what types of clients do you work with now and what value proposition do you offer through your solution to cater to these guys? Yeah, sure. I think um, our latest figure is we're serving north of 50 institutional clients, Amber being one of them. Uh, but you know, the best way I would describe um, the kind of clients that we service is you know, using traditional finance term, which is around buy-side offering and also sell-side offering. So on the buy side, we're tailing guys like hedge funds, prop trading firms, OTC desks. And on the south side, we're servicing um, lending platforms, exchanges, as well as clearing businesses. So the overall value proposition at a high level really breaks down into two pieces. 
It's around providing them additional layer of security, um, which, you know, leveraging MPC technology, which I hope to go into a little bit later in our conversations, but also providing industry standards to secure unsecured infrastructure to ensure that our clients' assets are safe. And the second piece actually sits around scalability. You know, the first and foremost part there um, where we provide value is around design, right? So from a user experience perspective, you think about how typically a fund transfer assets. Um, it has traditionally done it being a quite tedious and error-prone process. So, you know, we address that part. And then, you know, leveraging the network value that Fireblocks brings in Fireblocks network, where you can, instead of mapping addresses for counterparties, you actually just map the counterparty outright. And we look after all the tech behind uh, from making sure that you know, the addresses are being stored securely, um, all the authentication that happens in the back end when you are sending transfers across. And also the final piece there around scalability is, you know, in addition to digital assets, uh, we recently launched um, the ability for customers to transfer within their banking infrastructure from a unified platform as well. Thinking about the process around transferring digital assets and the process around transferring fiat payments, both of which um, we are looking to um, add value for our clients. And then, you know, more specifically, so for example, on the buy side, um, we launched a way for guys to be able to uh, confirm quicker. So by partnering with exchanges like Bitstamp, reducing the confirmation requirements for deposits from our clients. And then on the sell side, from deposit controls, uh, having risk-based controls around your confirmations and also KYC and uh, functionalities as well. Great. And you talked about integration with third-party platforms. How long do those integrations typically take? For our side, typically we evaluate a partner. We look at their API requirements and we look at the use case um, that we hope to achieve from this integration partnership. And then from there, we scope out a plan to be able to actually make the integration happen. So it ranges quite wide, you know, anywhere from two weeks to, to a month, a month and a half, it really depend on our workload on our side and also the actual specific integration required. I think really at the end of the day, right, as an infrastructure company, you know, we're allowing folks to kind of have a, a semblance of a little bit of a peace of mind that there's a firm that's fully dedicated to making sure things are online and running, right? And, and that becomes an important assessment factor as we think about platforms that we're continuing to work with. So a lot of that is really driven on the fact of, of customer demand and where our customers and clients are finding value within the ecosystem in the space. And then what we want to do is be able to kind of make sure that we can implement that in a way that allows them to, to really gain all the value that exists by working with those partners and, and having them integrated into the Fireblocks platform. So, you know, it's a little bit of work on our end to make sure like things align properly from, from that perspective. But as far as kind of like the broader integration piece, as Amy mentioned, there's a, there's a couple foundational elements like API requirements and other things, but then we were able to move pretty quickly thereafter. And so... What types of trends then are you seeing within the crypto capital markets, Stephen? And, and more specifically within Asia, uh, you're based out in Singapore. What types of trends are you seeing from the partners that you're speaking with there? Yeah, I think, I think we've seen a lot of really interesting things. Um, obviously, on our side, things in Asia have been traditionally moved towards high net worth individuals. And partially what we rely on Amy for, for her expertise is that she's been here for such a long time. But I think really one of the pieces are around here is clarity and regulation. And, and that's been a really important part. As I've been sitting here in Singapore, obviously the new payments regulation here in Singapore came into effect. And as we've talked to a number of clients here, they have spent a lot of time and effort really thinking through getting licensed in Singapore and what the implications are. I can tell you, you know, very upfront that we've spent a lot of time with lawyers on our side, making sure that we understand, you know, what the regulation is going to do and how that will be applied to Fireblocks and our role within, you know, this new regulatory landscape here in Singapore. I, I think when you look at places like Japan, obviously there are modifications in terms of what digital asset custodians, what digital asset marketplaces have to do from a, from a licensing perspective and, and what that means. Obviously in Japan, you have things around cold storage and the implications of 
cold storage for, you know, different exchanges and providers. And so that is something that we're keenly aware of and that we've been thinking through quite heavily in terms of our offering and making sure that fits and allows, you know, our Japanese customers to continue to use Fireblocks and do so in a regulatorily compliant way. So those are some of the things we're thinking through. I I know Amy's been here in this market for a while now, and she might have a couple other things on our end as well. Yeah, I I think to what Stephen said, what makes Asia incredibly unique as a market, one is the the amount of diverse client group that is based out here, both regionally by different regulators managed, well, uh, regulated by different regulators, but also from an offering standpoint, we have a lot more of the, what I call a digital asset infrastructure play that's based out here that, you know, compared to likes of Europe and then the US, it makes Asia quite unique. Um, but also in terms of from our product offering standpoint, um, we look to tailor to those guys as well. Right, designing products that not only a buy side firm can use, but also an exchange could leverage as well. And along that point, you know, I, I've been speaking with changes for the past few years. Even now, I'm seeing more of a willingness for them to build products servicing institutional clients and the institutional clients' unique needs. Um, and then, you know, having conversation around what can an exchange do to uh, gain or maintain market share for their clients and how can Fireblocks help them to do that is a lot of the conversations I've been having lately. You've shown how important it is to tailor your feature set, as you mentioned, Amy, to cater to the whole host of needs of different market participants, including exchanges. Now let's get more into the weeds, the nuts and bolts of how your clients can leverage Fireblocks for security and operational efficiency. So let's have a look at what this is like in practice. Amy, could you start us off by going over what the implied costs of doing business in crypto are? I imagine there are quite a few of them. Could you talk about this from a high level? Sure, absolutely. I think there's a few um, risks that comes to doing business in crypto. At a base layer, you have what we call protocol risk, right? You are operating digital assets on various different protocols. Each of them have unique challenges. Um, so for things like confirmation time, right? These are very protocol specific. And so there are risks associated with that when you are transferring assets on chain. Second tier risk is around your counterparty risk. So if you think about how a traditional market operates, um, you've got you know prime brokers and clearers and, and guys who've got balance in the middle who are you know mitigating some of that counterparty risk. But versus in crypto, being you know a, a traditional retail business and, and much more B two C focused, I think. Um, there's a risk associated with that, which is managing counterparty risk when you're interacting with trading partners, exchanges, and such. Um, and then, you know, it goes down into technology risk, right? Or, you know, costs associated with that. And what that means is, you know, unlike traditional markets where people kind of rolled in into infrastructure already, um, when you think about building crypto businesses outright, you have to build a lot of these infrastructure yourself internally. And, and, you know, to secure that, operate that, there are costs associated with, with it as well. Um, and then, you know, there's things like operations cost, right? Like, again, going back to the point I mentioned earlier, because crypto started as a, a B2C styled businesses, um, you know, there is no middleman in the middle that is handling some of the operational settlements. And effectively, you know, they, they look very similar to business to business in that sense where you have to settle or, you know, the buy side to settle with sell side directly. Um, and they have to maintain their own process around transferring digital assets as well across counterparties. Um, and then, you know, finally, I think this is the part that a lot of people talk about, you know, I just don't want to highlight here is around regulations, right? I think whilst digital asset is borderless, but, you know, regulations in each jurisdiction is not. So, you know, companies, as they scale across different jurisdictions, their implied cost of doing business when they're servicing clients, where they have to become compliant, they have to go through the legal processes to get regulated and such. And there's a cost associated with that as well. You know, Amy did a great job of highlighting kind of all the different costs and, and costs 
buckets that we think about from a risk and cost perspective. You know, my job is kind of from a product strategy perspective is to to really highlight what we think are areas where folks generally tend to overlook, you know, the cost of doing business and and, and the impacts, right? And, and those really sit along the lines of technology costs and operational costs. Coming from consulting, one of the biggest trends from a large consulting basis was thinking through, focusing on areas of competitive advantage, right? And really thinking through, you know, ecosystem system plays and partnership plays where, you know, you're able to leverage like the best of breed in order to bring that internally in-house, right? And reduce like the the associated costs of, of developing those things, right? So part of that association really from a, a thing like a technology cost, and when you're thinking about uh, technology like Fireblocks and, and, you know, others in the space, there's a quite a hurdle and uplift to kind of develop these systems, right? And, and you know, the costs associated with doing those things are high. The level of R&D and focus that a firm like ours puts into continuing to develop advanced technology and securing those assets are extremely high. And, and I think from our perspective, we view ourselves as one of the best in breed in terms of doing that. Right. And the view is that as you kind of think through, you know, managing things like the PL in your business and increasing things like, you know, reducing SGNA costs and things like that, the ability to leverage a platform like ours becomes what we think is a, an important thing to assess and to think about as you develop that. Right. And we've we've taken a quite a different approach to pricing our solution more along, you know, a software perspective than, you know, a traditional custody model. And we've done that as a basis of really thinking through how firms should be thinking about things like technology costs and bringing that into your business. From an operations perspective, I think there's the view of how do you really provide technology that operates on a 24-7 basis like the digital asset space does today, right? And so you need a system that is highly resilient, that allows you to expand the number of users and contract those users without necessarily, you know, revamping and overhauling your entire system and, and the way that you work. And we think about that in a lot of ways. We've been able to see clients on our side be able to increase their operational scalability by operating 24-7 settlements, by being able to process transactions even when someone isn't in the office, right? And 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 enabling that to be done in a highly secure way. And by allowing people, you know, workflows that allow junior personnel to be able to really manage and set up transactions while things while people like senior personnel approve those systems and or enable high levels of automation, right? And so when you start to think about that and the cost to, for operations in your business, right, and how that then impacts your bottom line and your ability to offer competitive pricing in things like the OTC space uh, and, and other areas, right, this becomes, you know, an imperative thing for our clients to be able to think about. And it's a lot of the conversations that we have today in terms of shaping the mindset around, you know, really evaluating those costs and bringing in a third party best of breed solutions provider to be able to provide, you know, some uplift in those two areas. For sure. And the idea is that if you can bring those costs down, then you can actually increase efficiency of doing business, right? And Amy, you had mentioned a number of risks uh, that a business within crypto specifically has to deal with, including technology risk, operational risk. And the idea is for, like you said, Stephen, leverage a third party who spends all day and all night thinking about this stuff um, and, and to partner with a service platform like that instead of needing to go out and hire a bunch of people to only replicate what you know you're, you're trying to build out um, but at may, maybe half the ability um, and, and so that's why I think for Amber it was really attractive for us to go out and find someone who was spending all day and night thinking about the roots of security because for us you know we were using sort of these standalone wallets before going to fireblocks when you talk about the sort of operational efficiency, we're needing to move stuff from cold storage, uh, you know, onto the hot wallets at exchanges. And we're integrated with over, you know, 90 plus exchanges. Talk about the difficulty and the complexity involved in managing that no less within, you know, a hundred plus person team uh, that is spread across all different regions, right? So I can tell you that, you know, our lives have been made much easier leveraging a third-party specialist in this field who's actually leading the charge there. Yeah, that's great to hear. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. 
Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. Amy, could you please explain what MPC is for all the non-cryptographers like myself and what the advantages are versus the other types of systems that we know of, such as multisig? So MPC stands for multi-party computation. It is a off-chain solution that allows a distributed group to, to jointly approve a transaction without disclosing any of their own inputs and outputs. To put it simply, like multi-sig, there are multiple signers in the world of MPC as well. But unlike multi-sig, these signers are communicating with each other and signing a single public key without disclosing any private key material. And the way they do that is by leveraging zero-knowledge proof. By design, MPC has no central point of failure. To, to give you some idea in terms of comparison to multi-sig, you know, multi-sig has some design shortcoming, right? So for one, for multi-sig, the approval structure is public. Uh, it is not supported by every blockchain. There are potential speed shortcomings during high traffic times. And lastly, which is perhaps where most people find it difficult to work with multi-sig wallets, it is once you set up a M of N approval structure, each time you change that approval structure, you have to spin up a brand new wallet. Now, you think about the potential room for error during asset transfers, you know, adding or changing addresses, then broadcasting to your counterparties and networks, increase your room for error. Right. So for MPC, because it is an off-chain solution, the approval structure is private. It is blockchain agnostic and the approval speed is independent of on-chain traffic. And finally, it gives you most amount of flexibility as you change your approval structure and as you transact and grow and scale a certain way, but also without sacrificing the security elements of that as well. Great. Yeah. So an article came out earlier this month revealing a new MPC algorithm that the Fireblocks research team developed that pushes digital asset transaction speeds up to eight times faster than what's currently possible. And apparently this new security protocol is open source as you guys aren't looking to patent this at least in the near future, which I think is super cool, right? That means really anyone can leverage this technology that you guys have improved upon. So Stephen, from a high level, can you tell us what benefits this upgraded MPC offers and who within the crypto ecosystem benefits from using this? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think when we mentioned earlier, right, our, our focus as a team is really around security, but it's also around research, right? And so as you mentioned earlier, this new algorithm speeds the transaction signing process up to 800%. We've made it open, right? Because we, we really feel like, look, we, we want to enable innovation within the space. You know, we see ourselves as wanting to push forward security and pushing forward, you know, the use and adoption of digital assets. And so we've made a very conscious decision, you know, not to necessarily patent this and, and privatize this model. And that was, you know, purposeful on our part. Right. From from our perspective, this new MPC CMP algorithm allows institutions to be able to configure a key management scheme that fits their organizational requirements, both in hot and cold setups. And it allows, you know, a couple of different things, you know, allows, you know, folks to be able to sign MPC transactions truly from a cold storage mechanism. And as I think we mentioned, right, like for jurisdictions and regulatory jurisdictions like Japan, where, you know, having assets in cold storage is still key, it allows our users and our customers to be able to leverage MPC as an additional uh, mechanism with cold storage infrastructure. You know, it also does a couple of different things where it automatically refreshes things like key shares um, on our side to, to increase kind of security around the protocol and all the different users. You know, it really does leverage our ability to be able to say to users, hey, leverage Fireblocks, but if there is some other utilization for this, we want to see the expansion of the, the whole security space overall. So we, we've taken a very kind of interesting approach to this new technological breakthrough, um, but we think it's the right approach for the space uh, as a whole. Excellent. Thanks for that. And Amy, you talked about the case for operational efficiency earlier. How does Fireblocks work with different types of companies to 
optimize their operations. Can you give us an example of what that looks like from a workflow perspective? And is there a difference working with early stage companies versus perhaps more established digital asset native companies within the space? Sure, definitely. To give you a few examples of how a typical workflow look like and how we can improve upon it, right? So if you think about internally um, at an OTC desk or, or trading firm, the trader settles a trade, or sorry, they do a trade and then the operation team is now sending the transfer over. They typically have to maintain some sort of database where the counterparty and the address um, is being stored. And then, you know, from there, they'll go through an approval process, right? Whether if they don't have this built in-house or um, they do a rudimentary way, but they do it on email or things like that, a process to be done. And then from there, someone has to send the transaction to the end recipient, right? Now, in our infrastructure, that whole entire process is one, secured, right? So all the approvals, you can only see stuff um, that you're supposed to see in terms of approving transfers. Um, you know, you can, the trader can initiate, but don't have the rights to approve. Some will have specific rules that tells you can only approve certain transfers around this size. And if you require a bigger amount, you remove, you require multiple approvals. All of this kind of rules and policies can be automated and access, uh, approved from a mobile device. Right. So if you think about also the nature of our industry, which is 24 seven on demand, um, having the ability to be able to uh, approve information through something as accessible as your mobile phone adds a lot of benefits uh, and also improve the efficiency there as well. Now, just in terms of even managing your counterparty perspective, if you think about how someone whitelists an address, right? Amber starting trading with fund ABC, you guys KYC, dock up, and then someone on your operation team is saying, here's our settlement address with DTC. He's like, yes, received. You take that information, you might have to copy and paste it somehow from the information transmitted to you, and then storing your system. You might do a test trade to make sure that you copy and paste it correctly. And then that is what the basis of you whitelist the address and then you can you know, settle accordingly, right? In the Fireblocks infrastructure, that entire process could be completely removed, right? Whereby if you are transacting with counterparty that's within our network, um, you don't have to manage each addresses for all the crypto assets you're trading with each other. You map the wallet specifically to yours with the counterparty and everything else in the back end, it gets done properly. And for the guys who are not a part of the Fireblocks network, um, you can very easily to be able to whitelist an address. We'll do basic check to make sure that it is the right address to the right blockchain. No missing digits to these addresses. Basic checks there. And from there, you can go through the approval process to approve a whitelisted address. So in terms of the workflow and the ways that you can mitigate risk and, and human error that could happen, we optimize there as well. So that's around a few examples. Um, and the second question you asked was around, do we think there's a difference impact wise from you know, an early stage or a more established uh, companies? Um, I think the impact are, are always there for either cases. I think for larger organizations, um, what's really important for them is at some point when you are running a very large trading desk or exchange, uh, introducing more people in the process become a suboptimal decision and it's not sustainable from a cost basis. Right. Automation allows you to scale between the day to day without increasing operation costs. And that also goes for operating security as well. Right. So someone in your organization is being paid to secure infrastructure. That cost can be optimized by leveraging our technology. The second piece for early, I think, is about being future proofing their business. You think about actually for an early stage company, they have even less headcount to spare when they're growing their business um, and utilizing our infrastructure to help them to get up to speed much quicker. For sure, for sure. Stephen, could you just add on to what Amy's just mentioned and tell us how achieving such operational efficiency flows to cost savings, which, as Amy mentioned, is very, very important to early stage companies, right, who might not have that big of a balance sheet, you know, is, is running a lean operation. Could you talk about how that operational efficiency flows to cost savings? 
I think one of the things we think about are, are, are in two ways, right? So we, we've seen a use case that's, that's pretty public on our side around, you know, enabling a firm to be able to settle more often with, with their counterparties from an operational perspective, right? By automating a lot of the flows, by operating where users interface with their clients and customers, you basically can decrease the amount of settlement time, right? Because generally speaking, settlement on a digital asset perspective, right? If you're using cold storage or if you're using hardware, devices, that is something that potentially can take a long time. Getting all these things set up, getting all the the right viewers on the system, uh, and and making sure that no one is kind of breaching a pretty manual set of uh, operational protocols. By kind of automating all those things, you basically are able to open up settlement periods, which basically enable, you know, customers to be able to settle with you more often, and allows you to kind of increase the amount that, you know, users right, that you've gone out into the market and acquired are able to face you and and open up those credit lines. I think from another broad perspective, right, we've seen users be able to get more scale out of their operational team. Generally speaking, there's this idea of a sunk cost when it comes to operations for a lot of folks, which is that I've hired these number of users, I've scaled my business as best as I can, given all the constraints of technology around me. And in essence, you know, I have five guys that are or five people that are on the operations team, they're able to do X amount of process X amount of transactions and volumes over the course of a day. And, you know, this is considered just like sunk costs in the cost of doing business, right? Well, the question that we always ask is what if you enhance that with, you know, automation and the ability to drive bespoke workflows that best meet the needs of your business, such that your five operational people actually become, you know, the equivalent of seven people worth of operational flows, but you're maintaining the same bottom line cost basis, right? And what that means is, right, you're getting scalability out of your operational personnel, but you're also increasing the margins associated with the ability to drive more revenue for the same amount of like overall cost, right? You're still carrying costs related to custody, whether you're using another custodial provider or not, right? But you're just implementing and and kind of swapping out some of those costs for operational scalability and custody, right? And so we've been able to see those for, you know, clients like Wharton and others that we work with, where they've been able to take a pretty lean team, but do a lot of business on the back end because they've been able to have a pretty highly scalable system. And this becomes even more apparent with, you know, our larger users on the systems that are able to get, you know, more scale out of the same number of operational personnel, but, you know, service a greater number of transactions uh, and business from their customers. Right. And Stephen, have you been speaking more with traditional financial institutions this year? Have you seen interest from these traditional financial institutions in understanding how your platform works? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you look at, you know, jurisdictional places like Germany with the Baffin regulation. There's quite a number of traditional financial services firms that are looking to get involved in the digital space. You know, we've been talking to a number of banks around their thoughts within digital asset custody and what it means and how it operates. And they're really utilizing, you know, the natively digital folks as a great use case for what this market really looks like. If you think about it, you know, folks like yourself and Amber, you guys are on the, you guys are kind of on the digital frontier, right? You guys are the cowboys in terms of understanding all the different use cases and workflows and, you know, creating those in a way to really replicate capital markets infrastructure. And and banks are highly aware of that, uh, of what you guys have been able to do and and how you guys have been able to do it. And they're listening and they're looking, They're, they're asking more questions around what are the potential use cases? What does that mean to the bottom line of the banking business? How do I secure those different assets? And how do I enable technology to enter my bank that, you know, I don't have to completely retool and reskill operational personnel around, right? And so, you know, we've been answering a lot of those questions and helping, you know, financial services firms think through the implications of of really entering the digital space. Right. And Amy, looking now towards another side of this ecosystem is decentralized finance. And I know you guys have been working to integrate with various participants or players, rather, within the decentralized financial space. So could you talk a bit about how Fireblocks is driving more institutional participation into this I would say next new frontier within crypto and allowing market participants to interact more securely with these platforms? Absolutely. So if you think about um, what has happened around DeFi and what incumbents are currently using, 
right? So if you want to interact with a platform like Compound previously, you would have gone through maybe like a MetaMask wallet, which in comparison to the Fireblocks infrastructure is perhaps not built for purpose for institutional investors. Where we come in is we launched our support for Compound such that our customers can um, lend their assets directly from their wallet. Uh, and we'll look to expand that offering to also include Borrow down the road. And also we've got roadmaps to work with other uh, players in this space, including DeFi exchanges as such as well. So we definitely are involved in, in, in this particular space. And for us, you know, when our customers come to us and they're seeking more product built for them, we will go and do that as well. Right. And Stephen, speaking about new innovations that Fireblocks is looking to drive, you guys also started a tokenization platform where you allow stablecoin issuers to mint and burn tokens. And I believe this is a recent initiative. Can you first explain how it works? And secondly, explain the reasons behind creating this product? Is it because of the surge in stablecoin interest? Uh, is, is there a particular demand in Asia for this type of product? Yeah, absolutely. So, so on our side, right, we're able to kind of we're able to integrate the smart contract uh, into our system um, and be able to you know execute a lot of operational functions. Right, if we think about everything that we're trying to do on our platform, right, there's a operational scalability issue with how folks may be doing tokenization and minting and burning actions today, and. And our view is really where are there opportunities to add operational efficiency within an all-in-one platform, right? And, and the idea that we're able to integrate a smart contract and then basically within that integration, leverage the secure infrastructure of the Fireblocks platform to be able to add, you know, things like quorum rules around minting and burning of assets, to be able to leverage the Fireblocks network to properly distribute, you know, assets once they've been minted to customers and to your clients becomes a pretty easy use case for us to adopt. And, and it's something that we've done. So, you know, the idea being, look, you know, there's still a great need to have operational infrastructure around this process, right? I've I've been around folks that are thinking through the minting and burning process, aligning those to automated workflows such that, you know, your the things that you mint and burn don't go out of whack with underlying assets, making sure that there's operational infrastructure such that, you know, a rogue employee cannot mint assets without, you know, a certain level of workflow approvals and, and really, you know, making sure that as you mint an asset, you securely deliver that asset to the underlying customer and it doesn't get rerouted or there's not a deposit spoofing or a man in the middle attack, right? Those those are all key and, and foundational. And so we've been able to do that. Um, we're working with uh, a number of customers here that are thinking through the development and are developing stable coins, have gone through the regulatory process to be able to do that. We're seeing thoughts around, you know, minting stable coins for things like Japanese yen, uh, Singapore dollar, you know, Hong Kong dollar and others. And, and our view is really like, we want to be able to provide the this stable infrastructure to, to these folks and have them leverage what we think is a robust infrastructure to be able to deliver those and distribute those in a, in a highly automated and, and operationally secure way. So that just became a very easy next transition for us to be able to you know, service these stable coin providers and these underlying tokenization providers. For sure. And speaking about Asia, Amy, you've recently joined to help expand the Fireblocks operations in various Asia regions. What's next? For yeah, Paris? I mean, I think without giving our whole entire playbook away, but you know, in short, it's it is about growing our market share out here, um, servicing our core customer base, uh, and also being cognizant of the unique ecosystem that is out here. You know, working with our partners um, to to be able to expand our offering around the product standpoint as well. Uh, and you know, obviously, that's one reason why Stephen is out here together because then we can have these conversations with our customers here and thinking about what to build next. But you know, for me personally, uh, it is about turning the conversations upside down around custody and, and removing it away from just a pure cost-saving discussion and think about what can Fireblocks do to help drive revenue for our customers. And that really comes to putting my trading hat on and you know, talking to buy side or sell side firms and think about besides just making your infrastructure more secure, besides just making operations more efficient, what else can we do that allows you to optimize your balance sheet? What can we do that helps you to be able to transfer quicker? All of these things are our discussion we're having now and things we're focused on out here in Asia as well. 
Great. Now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know the both of you a bit more. So I'll ask you a few questions here, but we'll start off with one of my favorites, which is what important truth about the crypto space do you believe in that few might agree with you on? Perhaps, Stephen, you can start and then Amy. Yeah, obviously, I think from our perspective, we focused on uh, providing active infrastructure, right? And I, I just I firmly believe that one of the benefits of the blockchain is the fact that you can move the assets rather seamlessly uh, between two counterparties, right? And that basically the ownership of the asset is immutable and, and kind of locked within the blockchain. I firmly am stepped away from the concept of centralized clearing and, and the fact that that's you know, a necessary basis. And, and as you think about the, the idea of cold storage, right, that really works on the basis of a user being or a firm being in the middle of those transactions. And then at a, you know, second layer ledger level can move assets between wallet in a, in a seamless way. I really think that as we think through it, cold storage will kind of go obsolete because, you know, blockchain enables different and new ways of thinking about clearing and settlement. And that clearing and settlement needs to be on an active infrastructure, right? And, and so if you think about where cold storage will really go, I think it'll be used more in the likeliness of backup recovery keys and things like that. When you think about like the technological advancements that are happening with MPC and the new protocols that we've developed and what we've been able to do with MPC within hardware uh, like SGX, insurers becoming more comfortable around uh, insuring, you know, hot wallet infrastructures like we've been able to have and other providers in the space have been able to have. And then regulators, you know, becoming more comfortable with emerging technology like MPC and other as well as our active basis in terms of, you know, proactively going out to regulators and talking to them about emerging technology. You know, the idea that a lot of this stuff, which happens on the basis of, you know, regulatory guidance will start to be eased. And as you think through, you know, these new innovative ways to think about clearing and settlement and, and the overall capital markets workflows, the need for this idea of cold storage in the way it's done today will kind of cease to exist. So from my side, we are seeing a lot of buzz around prime brokerage and also we've seen quite a lot of headlines on this recently. While, you know, I'm extremely excited for these developments, but I think unlike most people, we're perhaps further away from true prime brokerage and true cost margining than what most people realizes and what the headlines suggests. So for instance, um, you know, we have to ask yourself, you know, who's committing balance sheet behind these and how is credit risk being evaluated? Meanwhile, I think the real advancement immediately around balance sheet optimization will be uh, enabling real-time settlement. And Amy, starting with you now, what is a development within the crypto ecosystem that has surprised you over this past year? So there are really two things that surprised me. And, and I'm fully aware that the selection bias here because these are my observations and, and it could have been ongoing for long periods of time. And I just noticed it recently. But, you know, for Star, I'm very surprised by the level of intricacy that funds are currently operating at. So, for instance, the way they think about asset transfer now is, you know, if the time between you initiate a transfer and the arrival of the credit at the end destination is a known variable, then, then you know, I can optimize these opportunities and surgically move my assets where, where we need it. And as opposed to just having more assets around waiting for opportunity to happen. The second thing that surprised me is actually on the exchange side, which is, you know, their willingness to innovate and work with their client to increase their market share. Even the existing market leaders who currently holds probably most of the liquidity, they're even more eager and more open for innovation and willingness to work with each other. Yeah, I think I think on my side, it's not necessarily been surprising, but, you know, obviously after the FATF regulations came out and, and the guidance came out there, there's been a real big push by, you know, a number of different folks to think about the implications of this regulatory guidance on, you know, the existing crypto businesses, right? And, you know, what are VAST and how is information sharing going to be done? When we first kind of heard about this, right, there were like four or five different working groups that were thinking through how to, to apply this guidance into crypto custodians. And, and we've seen, in my opinion, a more rapid coalescing of these groups together than I, I anticipated, right? Um, as I've been in these conversations, you're seeing more and more folks being brought in and being pulled from across different working groups to kind of, as a broader industry perspective, you know, look at how we would solve those issues. And I think that happened a lot more rapidly than I, I would have anticipated. Um, and there's a bunch of really good guys and, and, and folks thinking about this and thinking about, you know, 
how this becomes, you know, an open protocol for, for everyone to be able to use and how, you know, the crypto space looks to kind of really engage with regulation in a way that makes sense and is done in a real mature way. And so, you know, that's been an exciting thing to kind of be a part of and, and to have seen happen in such a, a quick pace, probably a quicker pace than I anticipated. Great. And actually, you touched on my last question there, which is what excites you going forward about the crypto industry? Perhaps, Amy, you might have something to share with us on that note. So what excites me the most, which I touched on a little bit earlier, is we're having conversations with the customers around plans to make the rest of 2020 and 2021 their best years. And it's changing the conversation around custody from a pure cost discussion to two ways that we can help Fireblocks clients to generate more revenue. Right. On the exchange and lending and clearing side, it is about how can our custom infrastructure be not just a tool of confidence for the clients, but, but actually deliver automation that enable their clients to settle more, therefore trade more, and therefore more revenue for them. And, and for funds, you know, it can be around deposit controls for reduced confirmation time and balance sheet optimizations. And, you know, and finally, for all Firebox clients at the end of the day, it is the network value that we provide, which eventually takes that dollar spend in our infrastructure structure and make that multiply their revenue. For me, I think it's it's the evolution of all the workflows that are really coming into the space, right? If, if you look at where we were in the past, you look at lending providers like BlockFi, Celsius, uh, Nexo, Cred, others, right? They've, by kind of a de facto form, replicated like the traditional banking infrastructure, right? They provide things like custody, they provide yield on assets, they provide lending infrastructure. They do quite a number of things, right? We've we've recently seen more and more folks look to step into prime brokerage, right? And being able to offer prime brokerage services to customers and clients, right? And and that's, you know, another set of workflows and capital markets use cases that will get fleshed out and defined over time will provide a playbook for, you know, more traditional uh, financial services firms to think about engaging in the space, you know, in a way that they typically do for other asset classes, right? So, you know, I think it's always exciting to kind of see folks in this space really attack replicating and, and, and executing these different capital markets use cases in, you know, a highly evolved way that leverages things like technology, innovation to do so. And it'll be exciting to see what happens over the next few months to a year, you know, as more and more folks kind of step into this space and as more and more folks think about different ecosystem plays to, you know, involve larger financial institutions uh, and convince them to come on board. So, so pretty excited for that. Great. Thank you both. I think something that Milton Friedman has said that I think is super apt for this period of time, especially, is only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. And when that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And that, I believe, is our basic function to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And I think crypto is upending the way we live and think about everything, including data and asset security. As a technology solution provider, Fireblocks is leading the way through this change, transforming the way that people think about security, enabling the faster merging of the digital asset and traditional financial worlds and innovating for a better future. So with that, thank you, Amy and Stephen, for joining me today on Crypto Unstacked. I very much enjoyed our conversation, and I hope those of you listening learned a thing or two about the great work that Fireblocks is pioneering. Thanks, Leslie, and thank you for having us. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambeau. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.